In the first lecture on this chapter, we discussed how infant vision changes fairly rapidly over the first year of life, so that by eight months, infants have very close to the visual acuity or the ability to resolve detail that adults do. And by the time they're three months old, they have the color sensitivity that adults do. Much of infant vision is focused on the human face, which is undoubtedly the most salient stimulus in the environment of a sighted infant who has um, typically responsive, good enough parents. So a number of researchers have examined different phenomena regarding infant perception of faces. And there is an emerging consensus that faces are special stimuli. Now, it would make sense any social species has to have mechanisms for individual recognition. And since the eyes are in the face, um, subtle differences in facial features are uh, the candidate um, that wins the race. We could presumably pay attention to each other's hands or something else, but faces win. In addition to learning to recognize familiar caretakers, family members, very familiar neighbors. Um, infants are using their vision to process lots of other information about non-social stimuli in the world, about objects, about animals. Um, we originally believed that most perceptual constancies were learned gradually uh, with perceptual motor experience. But research over the last 20 years with infants has indicated that a number of perceptual constancies are either operational in the neonate or within a few weeks or months after birth. Um, so for example, uh, one perceptual constancy that we take completely for granted is that even though objects that are farther away appear to be smaller than the same object um, close at hand, we know that size hasn't changed. Um, and this ability to understand, to perceive size constancy, that object size doesn't change when retinal image size changes, um, appears to be present at birth. Um, in the um, experiment illustrated on slide 25, a tiny baby, a neonate, one less than 30 days old, um, is held in the experimenter's lap. The child has habituated to uh, the appearance of one cube. Now the child is shown 
the cube they viewed originally along with another cube that's cleverly positioned so that it casts a retinal image of the same size uh, but is in fact farther away from the child. So the question is will the child um, now recognize that the other object is a, a different object, a larger object, even though its retinal image is the same size. And the answer is that infants do this uh, and correctly recognize, that is, they dishabituate and look longer at the larger object. Of course, this research is conducted very carefully with counterbalancing of side of presentation so that you eliminate any effects of side preference. Um, so size constancy is one aspect of perception that is pretty close to hardwired. Um, another aspect of perception that under normal viewing conditions we take for granted is object segregation. Um, which parts of things we see belong together, are part of the same entity. Um, object segregation does not appear to be an innate function of our perceptual systems. Uh, very young infants use common motion, do things move together to perceive object segregation. If you look at the um, strange object pictured on slide 26, this looks sort of like a brick and a piece of um, vent piping. Adults look at this um, and at the top array say these objects are separate. One is partially occluded by the other. Um, but adults look at the second object and say uh, the piping is really attached in some way to the brick because if it was not it would fall because adults understand gravity. Um, Results of habituation studies indicate that very young infants don't have that understanding by the second half of the first year. They clearly do. Another visual cue that um, helps infants with object segregation is um, common fate. In slide 27, uh, we have a brick-like object obscuring a, a, a rod-like object. Um, and movement back and forth is indicated. If infants are shown the top display with the two ends of the, of the rod um, moving at the same direction, at the same time, same rate, and they are then shown um, either a separate set of line segments or a single line segment, they dishabituate to the two line segments but not to the single rod. So they 
perceive two line segments moving together as one um, rather than as two. Um, if instead of seeing a moving display, infants have seen a static display, then they don't dishabituate. So they, they haven't been able to reach any conclusion about the nature of the object behind the brick. Infants have mechanisms for depth perception um, that are available fairly early. Um, one of those is variously known as um, looming or optical expansion. If you see an image growing larger and larger and larger, um, and particularly if you see it growing larger and larger and larger at a fast rate, you assume that it's heading toward your head and you should duck. Infants as young as 18 months respond to this cue of optical expansion or looming um, by blinking and reflexively pulling their heads back. So this is a visually mediated response, but it's probably not a cortically mediated response. We've learned to describe this as an impending collision, um, but biologically we're prepared to do things to minimize it or minimize the damage that it causes. Um, in the first months of life, however, um, infants don't appear to be using the cues of retinal disparity to make determinations about depth or the distance of objects. But that becomes apparent when infants are around four months old. Um, in the middle of their first year, infants pay attention to and process the monocular or pictorial cues to depth. Um, objects that occlude other objects are in front of those objects. Objects that are occluded are behind those objects. Objects that are bigger on a page um, are closer. Um, but initially, infants don't understand that pictures of objects that provide some depth cues are in fact representations of objects rather than actual objects. So the infant you see in slide 30 is doing something that's typical even of infants of the same age in cultures in which books are very common cultural artifacts. He is trying to lift an object off the page of a book. Um, it's not uncommon um, in the first half or in, in the second half of the first year when giving infants picture books, say that to pick food, to see a child bring their mouth to a picture of an apple or bring the picture of the apple to their mouth. They, they don't quite process the nature of um, picture representations yet. Um, slide 31 um, shows an infant who is using a monocular cue to make 
decisions about depth, the child is shown a trapezoidal figure that looks like um, a window frame or some other kind of frame. And what the baby does, he has one eye patched, is reach toward the larger end. Um, the monocular cue of linear perspective tells us that converging lines are farther away. So that cue tells the child, uh, that in the relative size cue, that the larger edge is closer and that's where the baby reaches. Um, slide 32, we have another infant attempting to manipulate a picture in a book. Um, so vision develops. Some aspects of visual perception, of visual function are uh, relatively hardwired. Um, others mature as we have experience with the kinds of objects that we encounter in our world. Um, in contrast to vision, hearing or auditory perception is better developed, uh, but it still won't reach adult levels of acuity until around age five or six. Um, some functions like the reflex response to visual looming or expanding um, images um, are present at birth. So a newborn who hears a sound to one side of a room, one side of their head, will turn in that direction. But that's a reflex that doesn't rely on cortical processing. Um, auditory localization is a brainstem and midbrain reflex. Um, at birth, um, and as we know, even before birth, infants perceive differences in human speech. They particularly are sensitive to differences in rhythm. Um, a classic study, which we have discussed numerous times before, is by DeCasper and Spence. Um, some babies had been exposed prenatally to their mothers repeatedly reading a version of a Dr. Seuss story, um, Cat in the Hat or Dog in the Fog, which was a rewrite that preserved the rhythmic structure. Babies could select which of two recordings they would hear by changing their sucking rate. And in a series of experiments, it was demonstrated that they preferred their mother's voice reading a familiar story to the voice of a different woman reading a familiar story. They preferred their mother's voice reading the exact story they had heard prenatally to a story that their mother was reading with the same rhythm. They preferred a familiar story read by a stranger to a strange story read by a stranger. Um, in addition to perception of language, um, there's research on infant perception of music. Um, infants show many of the same preferences that adults show. Uh, unless we're terribly, terribly sophisticated, we prefer consonant tones. Um, we typically don't like dissonance. Um, 
except at points in musical compositions. Um, infants share this preference um, for consonants in chords, um, consonants in musical sequences. Um, very young infants respond to rhythm in music. Um, there's a very funny video you can find on YouTube of a baby dancing to Beyonce's um, single ladies. Um, the baby's in diapers, she's standing it's not even clear that she's capable of standing without holding on to things. And somewhat awkwardly and inexactly, but she's following the rhythm of the music and at points even attempting some arm and leg gestures as Beyonce and her dancers are doing. Um, infants also uh, recognize melody or melodic contour. If they hear a simple melody, then hear it until they habituate to it, then hear it transposed into a different key, they don't dishabituate. If they hear the same notes, but in a different sequence, they do dishabituate. So they can form memories for um, sequences of tones and recognize those over variation in um, key, over variation in pitch. So perception of music, um, memory for music, is evident in the first year of life as well. Um, infant response to music as infant response to um, many things is studied through use of a conditioning paradigm. Um, babies will be presented with, say, two acoustic stimuli, one after the other. They may be the same or they may be different. Um, and babies learn through a training routine that if they turn their head when there is a difference, they'll get to look at something really exciting, like maybe a dancing puppet, or maybe a little bear beating on a drum, or maybe um, a complicated light display. But they'll have a very brief visual reinforcer if they turn their head when they hear a difference between two samples um, of auditory stimuli. In addition to um, the prenatal development of audition, we know from our prior discussion that taste and smell are active before birth and that babies can, um, within days of their birth, and some evidence indicates even earlier, um, differentiate the scent of their own mother's breast milk from that of other women. So, okay, how do we um, tell that babies prefer the smell of their mother's breast milk from that of other women? Nursing mothers um, have to wear pads inside their nursing bras because you leak. Um, so, nursing pads from the mother are put on one side um, of the baby's head in an incubator or crib and nursing pads from another mother are put on the other side of um, 
the baby's head and you observe where the baby turns and how long the baby stays turned in that direction and you see a clear preference for the scent of the mother's milk. Um, it's also the case that the scent of the mother's milk can calm a distressed baby. Um, babies, particularly if they're sick or premature, um, undergo a lot of mildly aversive procedures in the hospital and some very aversive procedures. But for example, their frequent heel sticks to get tiny samples of blood. Uh, babies usually scream somebody sticks a needle into their heel uh, but if they have an olfactory stimulus that reminds them of their mother present in the crib with them um, they may not cry at all or they will um, calm down very very quickly much more quickly than without some s stimulus that reminds them of the mother. Um, babies as Piaget correctly observed, learn about the environment by actively exploring it. At first, babies explore with their mouths. Um, we have a complicated set of reflexes that facilitate that. Um, the grasp reflex um, occurs when anything comes in contact with a young infant's hand. The fingers curl around it wait, that's not all. Then the hand comes toward the mouth. Um, typically in a fairly clumsy way, in, particularly in um, very young infants. Um, and the hand and the object that's reflexively tightly grasped in the hand get mouthed. Um, if you put your finger in a newborn's hand, in a young baby's hand. They'll clutch it, bring it to their mouth, and suck it um, amazingly hard. Um, through use of um, habituation techniques, preferential looking techniques, uh, we've learned that babies can make um, some surprising discriminations even very early in life. Um, around four months of age, Babies learn to reach. The reaches are frequently um, joint endeavors of both arms, both hands, and they typically move from um, oral manipulation and exploration to manual exploration. They'll pat things, they'll rub them, they'll shake them, they'll hold them up and look at them, they'll bang them on things, but they move them around quite a lot. In the video we saw, the youngest baby brings things to his mouth. Um, another baby very actively shakes, rattles, and bangs things. But the action, even if she's holding a toy in one hand, is bilateral, involving both arms, both hands. Um, infants are also able to link various aspects, various qualities of stimuli into complex representations of them. Um, and we refer to this as intermodal perception. Um, infants can use haptic information, whether it's oral or manual, to construct 
complex object representations that they can fairly readily match to visual representations. Um, in one clever experiment, um, infants heard a soundtrack with a rhythmic thumping at the same time that they saw um, two different moving images. In one, a ball bounced, but not in rhythm with the soundtrack. In the other, the ball bounced in rhythm with the soundtrack. And babies prefer to watch the ball that's bouncing in rhythm with the soundtrack. Um, slightly older infants are able to accurately um, match facial expression of emotion with vocal expression of emotion. Um, by six months, babies are able to match a male voice with a male face, a female voice with a female face, and we'll see um, some tape of this later in the course. So babies have learned quite a lot about the people and objects in their environment. Use those to construct a multimodal, multidimensional representations of those objects. Um, the slide, the picture on slide 40, um, illustrates one of the experimental setups um, for studying intermodal perception. There are two screens in which an infant who's held in an adult's lap sees uh, two different images. There's a camera recording where the baby looks. And there's a speaker uh, broadcasting a soundtrack. In addition to um, rapid development of sensory and perceptual capacities. Um, one of the most evident things about development in infancy is that babies' movements become much more coordinated, much more goal-directed, uh, and uh, by the end of the first year, um, even though infants and toddlers lack adults' fine motor skills, they're developing characteristic human gross motor skills. So let's take a look at that. Um, we come into the world with reflexes. These are innate patterns of action that occur in response to particular stimulation. Um, most reflexes are mediated at the level of the brainstem and midbrain. Um, a few reflexes, such as the pain avoidance um, reflex are mediated at the level of the spinal cord. So they don't get the behavior, the withdrawal behavior, um, really depends on a circuit of only three neurons, a, a sensory neuron, an inner neuron, and a motor neuron. And the brain isn't involved at all. But most of the reflexes that we see in babies um, are generated at the level of the brain stem or um, the structure right atop the brain stem, um, the midbrain, which consists of the tectum and tegmentum. Um, some of these reflexes, as we saw in the video clip, um, have clear adaptive significance. Rooting and sucking are essential for um, 
effective um, eating. Um, babies can't chew solid food, or neonates can't chew solid food, so they have to have a diet of um, milk, preferably mother's milk. Um, other reflexes are sort of lost in history, what any adaptive significance of them might be. But things like the Moro reflex, like the grasping reflex, like the Babinski reflex, probably go back to points in our evolutionary history when our ancestors were covered with fur and newborns clung to the fur of their mothers. Um, we've talked about the stepping reflex, which typically disappears around two months. And we now know that the disappearance of the stepping reflex is due to the very rapid weight gain that typically takes place in the first weeks of life, um, proceeding at a much faster rate than the development of muscle mass and muscle strength. Um, slide 44 shows the experimental um, set up that Esther Thielen used. Um, she videotaped babies, their little um, bands on their hips, on their knees, on their feet, on their ankles, so that uh, videotape uh, could do an earlier version of what we now call motion capture. Um, and Babies who had stopped stepping, held in this um, tank apparatus, started stepping. Babies who had continued to step past the two-month mark, um, given ankle weights, stopped stepping. Um, slide 48 uh, has an illustration that's from the book that shows the average age with one standard deviation for achievement of a variety of motor milestones. Um, note that the first milestone is that at birth, or that when, when prone, babies can lift their head and hold it up, and that some babies are capable of doing this at birth. Um, and the vast majority are doing it by the time they're two weeks old. The horizontal axis is age and months. Um, so it's unusual for a baby to be able to hold their head erect and stably, to have the strength and neck muscles that enable it to do that. Um, but it's within normal range. Um, Typically, between two and four months, babies placed on their stomach will push up using their arms for support. And sometime in that range, or a little bit later, they learn to use their leg and one arm to push themselves over. Um, next, they generally learn to support some of their weight um, with both arms and legs. And for many children, this then advances into crawling. But you'll notice that crawling isn't a motor milestone. When we think of crawling, we think of babies on all fours, uh, 
basically walking. But you see many, many variations um, on locomotion before babies start to walk. Um, some babies never crawl on their bellies. Some babies crawl on their bellies using a commando crawl in which they're only using their arms to pull themselves forward. Um, other babies do sort of an inchworm thing in which they uh, move their legs forward so their little butts go higher and higher in the air and then they collapse their trunk which propels uh, their shoulders and arms forward and then they do it again. Um, in some cultures babies are never allowed the opportunity to move around on the floor or the ground on their bellies because it's considered um, dirty or it's considered dangerous. Um, some babies learn to move before they can walk by scooting on their butts. They sit up and pull themselves forward uh, by moving their feet forward. Cultural variation, individual variation, sort of random events um, in which a baby learns, oh, I can move if I do this, um, produce a wide variety of ways of moving prior to walking. Um, sometime around six months, babies begin to be able to sit without support, without an adult actively holding them up. Um, oftentimes babies can sit briefly without support, but then muscles in one side or the other of the trunk give way and they topple over. Um, babies typically can't put themselves in a sitting position and maintain it until they're around eight months old. Again, you notice this milestone isn't on the chart because there's wide cultural variation in the opportunity that children have to do that. If you don't let a child play on the ground or play on the floor, um, they're not going to learn to push themselves up to a sitting position. Um, many parents from early in infancy will hold their infant's hands or allow their infants to hold their hands, um, supporting the infant's weight on the infant's feet. Um, so the baby is standing but is really supported by the adult, not supported by their own strength and coordination. Um, sometime in the middle of the first year, babies develop the strength and coordination to stand with support. The support may come from a parent, the support may come from furniture or other objects in the child's environment. Um, typically as they're learning to stand, they're learning to pull themselves up so they can stand. Uh, babies' initial steps are usually made um, doing what lots of people call cruising. The child may walk around the perimeter of a room moving from one piece of furniture to another, not daring to let go. Um, sometime while children are learning to walk with passive support from objects, uh, they learn how to stand up by themselves. And from there, the progression to walking alone uh, is frequently quite rapid. These milestones 
um, can be delayed by cultural practices. They can be um, accelerated by cultural practices, but the degree of acceleration is smaller than the potential degree of delay. Um, we'll see a video um, later in the course about the use of treadmills with infants who have Down syndrome to accelerate their motor development. Infants with Down syndrome are typically extensively delayed in motor development as well as other aspects of development. And because of the complex interactions between different domains of development, delays in motor development aggravate delays in cognitive development. So if you can accelerate the motor development of a child with Down syndrome or other developmental delays, you can typically um, nurture other aspects of social and cognitive development as well. Um, prior to the emergence of the dynamic systems approach, um, most researchers believed that motor development proceeded according to a genetically, biologically determined schedule. The nervous system matures, babies crawl, babies get up and walk. Um, what we now understand is that while maturation plays a role, um, nutrition plays a role, experience plays a role, um, the child's temperament and um, interest in exploration play a role. Um, parental practices, the physical environment, all of these factors um, interact uh, to dramatically affect the trajectory of motor development in individual infants. Now let's look at an example of cultural practices that can influence motor development. Um, slide 50 illustrates some stretching um, exercises that mothers and grandmothers in West Africa use to strengthen their infants and increase their flexibility. Um, we'll see some videotapes um, of these exercises and they can be quite dramatic but they don't hurt the infants even if the babies protest um, some of the stretching movements and they do speed up the development of motor skills. These practices have followed people in migration to the Caribbean islands um, and some to this country and can accelerate motor development by months. In slide 51, um, we see Karen Adolph um, with one of her infant subjects. Again, notice that their sensors on the baby's hands, on the baby's wrist, on the baby's elbow, on the baby's shoulder. Um, as we saw in the videos in class, uh, infants initially make pretty clumsy, uncoordinated movements in the direction of objects they see that are interesting. Then they begin reaching with both arms 
three to four months and will sometimes succeed in reaching their targets. Uh, but they still are not skilled at manipulating objects. And infants in this age group are sitting in infant seats, being held in someone's arms. They don't have the strength in the muscles of the trunk and abdomen to consistently hold themselves upright. As babies gain the ability to sit upright without the support of a chair or an adult who's holding them, um, they're becoming stronger generally, but they're developing better coordination and their ability to target an arm and hand movement toward a particular object um, increases dramatically. <coughs> and you see one-armed reaching um, in many children rather than the bilateral parallel movement of both arms. Um, as children gain more experience manipulating different objects, they learn to conform the shape of their hand to the object and the use they're planning for the object. Uh, and before they're a year old, they're clearly controlling um, the position the orientation of their hand as they approach an object to grasp it and use it. Um, in this culture, most infants crawl, and the average age for crawling is eight months. Though, as I mentioned, many different idiosyncratic methods of location may develop. Infants begin walking independently sometime around their first birthday. Um, in this country it tends to be earlier, in Europe it tends to be later, and the occasional child will be walking, even running, at eight or nine months, though that's very unusual. Um, in slide 54 we see a much younger Karen Adolph with one of her um, laboratory setups. This is a ramp with safety nets on both sides that's too steep for babies to crawl down or to walk down. And what Adolf and her colleagues have discovered there is that infants don't generalize what they learn about what they can do with one mode of locomotion to another mode of locomotion. An infant who is just learning to crawl will approach this steep incline and attempt to crawl down it and tumble down, uh, being caught by the researcher in the safety net so that they don't hurt themselves. Um, after a few weeks of crawling experience though, an infant will placed on the platform will look down the ramp, maybe put their hands down it, um, and not attempt to crawl. They'll extend their arms and their legs and slide down. But the baby who has learned that this ramp is too steep for me to crawl down, brought back to the lab when they've just started to walk, will look at the ramp and try to walk down and tumble down. 
a baby who's had a few weeks of experience walking placed on the platform will tentatively place a foot on the incline or simply look at it um, and typically sit down on their rear end and slide down. They may lie down and slide down on their stomach, which is a technique that many toddlers and infants use for going downstairs. So without experience, a child won't know that it really can't navigate down this incline safely. With experience in a particular form of locomotion, they'll know that they can't, but they don't generalize that to the next more complicated, more mature form of locomotion. Um, there's some interesting research that Judy Deloche and her colleagues um, have collected on what they call scale errors. Uh, this is work that um, I'm somewhat skeptical about, um, as are some other people, uh, because I think it's very hard to distinguish between a child's play and a true scale error. So in a scale error, toddlers may try to do something with a toy that really can't be done with the toy because their body isn't in proportion to the toy. So for example, try to sit on a dollhouse chair. Um, if we see a child playing with uh, miniature plates and spoons and feeding itself with a miniature spoon, we typically wouldn't call that a scale error. We would say the child is playing, the child is pretending. Um, but these very amusing photos in which a little boy is trying to slide down um, a miniature slide, another child is apparently trying to get into a miniature car, another child is sitting on a miniature chair, um, may or may not represent scale errors. Um, here's how the research was done. Children were brought into an experimental playroom with large play school toys. You may remember the play school red and orange, red and yellow car, the play school slide, um, and similar toys from your childhood. Um, after the child has played with the large objects, they leave for a minute, uh, they come back and now in the playroom there are miniature toys and other toys. If the child doesn't spontaneously play with the miniature toys, the researcher directs their attention to them and tries to get the child to play with them and records what they do. Um, 48 children were brought into this laboratory scenario and very, very few of them made spontaneous scale errors. Um, when researchers brought the children's attention to the miniature objects, um, then in response 
to the researcher saying, would you like me to read you a story? Here's a chair. You might see something like a child sit in a miniature chair. Um, I have a hard time believing that the toddlers were doing something other than playing. But um, Deloge believes that, in fact, they were making um, a, a perceptual motor error. Um, there is a theoretical explanation for these rare scale errors that is coherent um, and fits with um, some things we know about adult behavior. Um, the basic idea is that we represent artifacts, things that are manufactured rather than things that occur naturally, both in terms of some abstract visual um, image of what the typical parts are, the typical arrangements of the parts, and in terms of the actions that we execute on or with the artifacts. So the visual appearance of a hammer triggers the action representation. What do you do with a hammer? You grasp the handle, you pick it up, and you hit things with it. <coughs> um, and what Deloche is suggesting is that in the immature brain, the same thing happens. Um, children have acquired concepts about these artifacts. They see the artifact, though it's miniature, that activates the action representation. And normally, the small size of the object would be registered, and the, the execution of the action representation would be inhibited. But in the immature brain, um, maybe thinking skips a beat. Um, and the small size isn't registered, but the execution of the action routine appropriate for the object type isn't inhibited by perception of the small size. And so the child tries to get into a miniature car, sit on a miniature chair, slide down a miniature slide. Um, as I said, I think it's a coherent explanation. Um, but in years of observing many, many children, I never saw anything that I would categorize as a scale error. I saw lots of pretend play. Um, cultural practices uh, that influence motor development aren't restricted to the west coast of Africa and the Caribbean and the islands off South Carolina. Um, Something as simple as the public health campaign to reduce sudden infant death syndrome, which was uh, associated with many factors, but one of them was babies being put to sleep on their bellies. Uh, the back to sleep campaign that encouraged parents to put babies down on their back um, has resulted in an increase in the age at which infants typically roll over. Um, in addition, since babies are spending less time on their bellies, they're doing fewer baby push-ups. Um, and arm strength develops more slowly. Um, so in addition to rolling over later, uh, babies are crawling a little bit later. By 18 months, they're no 
differences now in motor uh, development than there were 20 years ago before the Back to Sleep campaign. Um, experiments with the visual cliff illustrate the interaction between children's social and emotional development and their ability to comprehend facial expression and their growing uh, perceptual competence in vision. Um, Eleanor Gibson and her colleagues placed baby humans and um, young of a number of species such as goats and lambs um, on the visual cliff apparatus. Um, the visual cliff is a plexiglass platform. Half of it is over a visually patterned um, checkerboard that is positioned immediately under the plexiglass. There is a uh, board dividing it and the second half um, again has a surface that is very strong thick plexiglass but because of the way it's lit the, uh, the checkerboard which is now at a variable depth beneath um, the plexiglass and may be as far away as 30 inches, um, it appears that there is a sudden drop-off. So there, the visual appearance is a cliff. You come to the edge of the board and it appears to drop. Very young infants um, who have started to wiggle their way um, through the world will crawl over what appears to be the deep side of the visual cliff. Um, older babies look over the cliff, see the apparent drop, and don't budge. Um, so it looked like babies weren't paying attention to the cues to depth. More recent experiments in which younger infants are lowered over either the shallow side or the deep side and their heart rate is measured um, shows that infants heart rates decelerate that is they're noticing something's different when they're lowered over the deep side. Um, infants these are babies who don't crawl yet um, so they're noticing the difference they don't apparently understand the potential meaning of those visual cues because they're not mobile. So as babies have experience moving around in the environment under their own power, um, they have a different understanding of the meaning of heights of surfaces. Um, visual cliff research has uh, also been very helpful in uh, our understanding of baby's perception of facial expression. Infants who are mobile pay attention to their parents' facial expression if they're not very experienced crawlers. So if the mother stands on the far end of the deep side or the father and encourages the baby to cross, um, the baby may crawl across if the baby can't get over the fear of height, 
they may crawl across backwards as if they were going downstairs. Um, but an inexperienced crawler who doesn't seem to be afraid of the apparent drop-off, if their parent's facial expression is one of anxiety or fear, even if the parent doesn't say anything, will start to crawl over, notice the parent's facial expression, and back off. Um, most babies, when they encounter something new, encounter something novel, check the parent's or other caretaker's facial expression. Is this okay? Can I crawl toward the dog? Can I crawl toward the deep end? Um, can I go here? Significantly, children who will later be diagnosed with autism don't exhibit this kind of social referencing prior to exploration, prior to approach to something novel um, that typically developing infants and toddlers show. Okay, let's talk about different kinds of learning in infants. Um, we've talked extensively about habituation. An infant can demonstrate that it's formed a memory representation of a repeated stimulus by stopping paying attention to it. Um, the, some infants habituate very slowly or not at all. That's a warning sign. Watch development carefully with this infant. There may be something wrong. Um, speed of habituation um, is a moderately good predictor of general cognitive ability um, later in life. Um, slide 62 um, illustrates the typical facial appearance of an infant who is being presented with a novel stimulus that's then repeated for a number of trials. Um, in this case, by the fifth frame, the baby's hardly paying attention at all. But in the seventh frame, a novel stimulus, in this case a novel face, is presented and her eyes are wide open. Um, she's very interested again. Um, infants observe the world around them very, very carefully. Um, Gibson speaks of differentiation and affordances as the infant constructs sense in the repetition of events, the repetition of um, event scenarios in its daily life. Differentiation is detection of those elements that are stable, that are invariant. Um, what things always go together. Um, as infants explore their worlds, they discover what can be done with different things. Um, for example, um, what can be done with a cup? You can turn it upside down. You can spill things with it. You can bang it. You can drink out of it. You can stack other things on it. You can put things um, like spoons, like toys inside it. You can even hit someone with a cup. All of these different uses are what Gibson referred to as affordances. Um, 
something that's extremely stable in a particular environment might have relatively few affordances. Um, for example, the floor. Um, what can you do with a carpet? You can rub it. Um, you can spill things on it, rub them into it, um, but you can't typically pull it up and wrap it around you like a blanket. Um, unfortunately, children can discover a number of affordances for things that we want to be completely unchanging in our household environments um, and do considerable damage in the process of exploring what might be possible. Um, related to the concept of differentiation to the concept of perceptual learning is another concept, statistical learning. Um, statistical learning refers to noticing patterning in events, um, noticing predictability in events. Um, from very early in life, infants, infants are sensitive to the regularity with which one kind of event follows another. Um, one of the theorists who has argued against um, the modular approach to development is Jenny Safran at the University of Illinois. And Safran has um, focused on statistical learning as a potential mechanism for many aspects of language acquisition. Um, after 13, 14 years of intensive research, um, Safran has softened her position um, and acknowledges that there probably are um, some strong innate components to many aspects of infant learning. Um, and most of the nativists um, have acknowledged that there are some general learning mechanisms that contribute to confidence, to growing competence in specific domains. So with the exception of relatively few researchers, uh, we're, we're seeing convergence between the learning theorists who are the heirs of the strong behaviorist tradition that characterized American psychology in the mid-20th century um, and the nativist or core knowledge theorists um, who in some sense are the heirs of, 20th, um, of early 20th century ethologists. Um, Classical conditioning um, can be demonstrated in neonates and probably plays um, an important role in um, many aspects of everyday learning about the environment. Um, in our acquisition of likes and dislikes, um, hopefully you remember the uh, case of little Albert, John Watson, conditioned little Albert to be afraid of white furry things by pairing the presentation of a white rat with um, an aversive clanging noise behind the infant's head. Um, and the purpose of this conditioned fear response or the experiment producing this conditioned fear response was uh, so that Watson could demonstrate that classical conditioning played 
a potential role in human behavior. So he demonstrated that an emotional response, a fear response, could be acquired through classical conditioning. It wasn't simply reflex responses such as salivation um, of a dog uh, that could be elicited by a neutral stimulus like the ringing of a bell in Pavlov's classic experiment. So classical conditioning uh, probably plays a role in the associations that we don't always understand between tastes and smells and places and uh, emotional responses to those tastes and smells and places. Um, instrumental conditioning, also known as operant conditioning, um, is demonstrated in uh, many, many experiments with infants, but is sort of the core of many um, parenting practices. We reward our children's behavior with positive attention, hopefully not prizes too often. Um, we withdraw positive attention when they behave badly. We may even punish them um, if they behave badly. <coughs> So the infant, the toddler, the child learns that there's a relationship between what it does and the way the environment, particularly the parents, respond to that behavior. Certain behaviors are followed by positive attention, hugs and kisses. Um, other behaviors are followed by sharp words, angry faces, time out, the withdrawal of attention, a slap on the hand, um, or even something more aversive. Um, the kinds of responses that have been um, acquired by infants in operant con or instrumental conditioning experiments are listed on slide 67. With newborns, um, head turns um, have been conditioned with operant conditioning. You turn to the left, you get a sip of sugar water. Turn to the right, bubkas. Um, infants have developed differentiating sucking patterns to see different visual displays to keep a movie of a face in focus. Um, Carolyn Rovi Collier uh, trained infants to kick in response to a mobile. The reinforcer was that the mobile bounced and moved. Um, in extending her research with older infants, she uh, had something very much like the Skinner box and the baby pushed a lever but instead of getting a pellet of rat food um, that caused a little toy train to move along a track for two seconds. So in this setup you have um, babies who were old enough to sit up and control their hands pushing the lever repeatedly to keep the train moving. Um, slide 68 shows um, this, a typical setting for one of Rovi Collier's experiments. Um, there's a ribbon attaching the baby's foot to the mobile. When the baby kicks, the mobile moves. 
Um, we won't see this video, obviously, um, but in any operant conditioning experiment, you need to collect data on the baseline rate at which the operant behavior is emitted by the organism, whether it's a rat or human baby, before the response contingency is in place. Um, then, during the acquisition phase, when the desired response is reinforced, um, you collect data on the rate of the operant behavior. Um, then you test memory by assessing the rate of the operant behavior in the absence of reinforcement. So in Dr. Ovi Collier's experiment, baseline rate of kicking is measured. The, infants, uh, the infant has a mobile hanging over them, but, and there's a ribbon connected to their foot, but it's not connected to the mobile. So kicking doesn't produce movement in the mobile. During the acquisition phase, the mobile and the infant's foot are connected by the ribbon. During the test phase, again, the infant is presented with the mobile. There's a ribbon on its foot, but the ribbon is connected to something else, not the mobile. And if you see a significantly higher than baseline rate of kicking, um, you know the baby remembers that kicking moves the mobile. Um, in addition to classical conditioning and operant conditioning, um, infants and toddlers can acquire behaviors through imitation, observing others engage in the behavior and copying the behavior. Um, we've talked repeatedly about Meltzoff's work with um, imitation of facial expressions, um, but more complicated behaviors can be imitated as well. Um, infants appear to process the goal-related nature of the behavior that they're observing. So for example, um, in one experiment, an adult turns on a light in an odd toy by hitting the toy with their head, bending over at the waist and bopping the toy with their forehead. Um, if the infant sees an adult whose arms are full of things bop the weird object with their head, when the infant is given the opportunity to imitate, they use their hands. But if the adult's hands and arms are unencumbered when the behavior, the head bopping, um, is demonstrated, then infants will press on the toy with their head. So they understand in the first setting when the adult's hands are occupied that the point is pressing down on the top of the object to get it to light. Um, and that if the adult's hands were free, they would use their hands, but they're using their head because their hands are free. The goal is really to depress the top of the toy. But where the adult's hands are unencumbered and the top of the toy is depressed with the head, the infant's inference is, this is the way you turn this toy on. Um, some experiments have been done, again, by Meltzoff, in which a mechanical device 
um, engages in a series of motions um, and a human engages in the same series of motions and children are given objects to enable them to imitate those motions. They don't imitate the mechanical device, they do imitate the human. Um, by the time kids are a little over a year, they may imitate actions that they've seen on television. Um, slide 71 shows the setup in Meltzoff's experiment. A human tries to pull the ends off a dumbbell. A mechanical device tries to pull the ends off a dumbbell. Given the dumbbell, the child will try to pull the ends off, and for the baby, it works. Um, what do babies know? Um, again, the nativist position suggests that babies are born with knowledge about the physical world. Um, a less radical nativist approach focuses on specialized learning mechanisms um, that are domain specific so that without effort but just normal experience, we very rapidly learn in specific domains. Um, yet another theoretical point of view says general domain general learning mechanisms strengthen infants representations about people, objects, and events in the world. Um, and like the Piagetian approach, um, the dynamic systems theory approach places a great deal of emphasis on the integration of perceptual and motor processes. Um, Piaget, as you remember, believed that infants did not understand that objects that could no longer be seen continued to exist. Um, this point of view has been challenged by um, a number of different uh, experimental results, uh, but the most compelling comes from the violation of expectancy procedure, which is a variation of the habituation techniques. So babies are shown an event um, repeatedly until they habituate and then they are shown a version of the event that should cause the infant to be surprised because it violates some physical principle. But on the surface, it has the same appearance as the event that the infant has already habituated to. The classic example of this is Rene Barillon's um, experiment illustrated in slide 75. Um, an infant observes a screen rotating through 180 degrees until they habituate. Then an obstacle is placed in the path of the rotating screen. At test, and this is a between subjects design, so different infants are seeing this. Infants either see a possible event in which the screen starts to rotate but stops at the point that it would make contact with the top of the occluding object, or they see the screen rotate through the position of the occluding object, which would be physically impossible if the object 
continued to exist. Now remember, in the possible event the child has seen the object placed in the path of the screen, once the screen has rotated to um, 50 or 60 degrees up from the horizontal, the infant can't see the box anymore. So if Piaget's right, the arc, the, the screen should continue to rotate through. Now what is compelling about um, Baryon's result is that the event that on the surface was identical to what they had habituated to is the one that they dishabituated to. So D is identical to what they've seen before. The screen rotates from one position to a position 180 degrees from there. But if infants understand that the block continues to, or the box continues to exist even though they can't see it, they should be surprised. And in fact, they are. Their looking time increases when they see the block, the screen stop um, where the block should be. They don't act surprised. <coughs> A number of researchers have investigated the A not B error. Um, and among the things uh, that people have found is if the object isn't hidden, but it's just waved around one position and then another, they still show the same reaching pattern. So this suggests that the infant has encoded a motor behavior, and that's what's most accessible, and so they can't inhibit it. It is the prepotent response. Um, if instead of investigating where infants reach, you focus on where they look, so you use visual attention, um, then infants appear to have some understanding that the object actually went to location B. Um, so some of the explanations are memory limitations in the infants, problems with exerting inhibition as a result of immaturity of the frontal cortex, um, and competition between an object representational system and a motor response system, which is similar to the explanation of scale errors. Um, we'll also see later yet another potential explanation for the A not B errors. Um, in the early 90s, Karen Wynn uh, got quite a storm of attention and controversy with her claim that five-month-old infants um, have knowledge of basic addition. Um, using the violation of expectations technique, she showed infants a variety of addition events. So for example, um, a screen is lowered, then it's raised, one doll, then another doll is moved behind the screen. Then the screen is lowered and either one doll or two dolls are there. Um, 
if infants stare longer when there's one doll, that's interpreted as indicating that they understood that there should be two dolls present. Um, and in fact, uh, babies do stare longer at incorrect outcomes. Um, subtraction events uh, were also modeled by Wynn. Um, a 2 minus 1 event. Uh, two dolls are shown, a screen rotates up, one doll is removed, the screen is lowered, and infants either see the possible event of one doll or the impossible event, two dolls, and they stare longer at two dolls. Um, her results, her interpretation have been challenged uh, by several researchers. She has um, countered with a detailed analysis of their criticism. Um, so the issue remains um, unresolved. There are both successful replications of her results and some failures to replicate. Um, other researchers have looked at infants' understanding of physical principles such as gravity. Um, again, this is Renee Barillon's work. Um, she's looking at support relationships. This is illustrated on slide 84. Um, very young infants seem to pay no attention to gravity. But by three months, if they see an object resting on top of another, um, move so that it is no longer supported, and not fall, they express surprise. Um, at five months, as long as some kind of contact is maintained, um, on the top, infants don't express surprise. They do express surprise if the type of contact is side to side. Um, by six months, there seems to be an understanding that there needs to be support under the center of gravity of the supported object. So a six and a half month old will express surprise if one object is supported only um, at its edges by another. Um, by a year, infants have more of an understanding of gravity, center of gravity, balance, um, and much of this undoubtedly comes from their memory of their many experiments with pushing things off the edges of other things, throwing things, um, finding out how objects behave. Um, infants in the first days and weeks of life distinguish between animate and inanimate things in their world. And within the first few months, 
seem to understand that the behavior of animate entities, people and animals, is directed toward goals. Um, we've talked earlier about Amanda Woodward's research um, involving reaching. We'll, we'll see that again. Um, by the end of the first year, babies clearly understand that behavior is related to people's goals, to what they intend to do. Um, and this is really the beginning of theory of mind. Um, Woodward's classic experiment is illustrated in slide 86. Uh, babies habituate to a reaching event. They dishabituate if reaching is to a different object. They remain habituated if reaching is to the same object, even if it's a different location. <coughs> um, and one very interesting study that has since been followed up with some very dramatic work, um, researchers at Yale presented babies with um, animated simple geometric figures. Um, and babies like humans attributed intentionality to these figures based on their behavior. <coughs> what, what seems to be essential to attributing intentionality um, is responsiveness um, and interaction. In one study, um, babies at 12 months and 15 months were shown uh, an acrylic fur-covered blob that made noise and that moved. Um, either it moved randomly and vocalized randomly in a way that had no connection to what the researcher did or what the baby did, <clears throat> or it vocalized in response to the baby's vocalization um, or the researcher's vocalization. If it had been responsive, then when the blob suddenly turned as if it's orienting to something interesting, the babies looked in the direction that it turned. If the blob's behavior had been random, even though it was moving, even though it was making noise, they didn't act as if it had any internal state, as if the turn was intentional, um, directing attention um, towards something in the environment. Um, slide 88. Uh, introduces the experiment that I started to talk about in which babies watch a simple film of geometric forms interacting. Um, this is illustrated on slide 89. Um, the red ball attempts to go up the blue incline. The, the green triangle gets behind the ball and helps it move up the incline. The yellow square gets in front of it and pushes it down and prevents it from moving up the incline. Um, after babies have watched this scenario for a while, they're then shown 
the three shapes and the red ball may approach the green triangle or it may approach the yellow square. Babies did not indicate surprise when there was approach between the ball and the helpful triangle. They stared, uh, opened their eyes really wide when the ball moved toward the yellow square. Um, similarly, there were avoidance scenarios. Babies expressed surprise if the red ball tried to avoid the green triangle. No surprise if the red ball tried to avoid the yellow square. So they evidently attributed positive or negative um, intent based on the movement, um, the helping, the hindering movement. Um, Baby's ability to engage in complex uh, means in problem solving. Um, as we've seen with the say, toy retrieval scenarios, emerges in the first year, in the second half. Um, it's difficult for younger babies to do this if there are barriers in between the toy they want um, and themselves. They have to think about moving the barriers, but many babies will just reach or lunge toward the toy they want and not put together the step-by-step -step, uh, plan for removing barriers and decreasing distance. Um, Eleanor Gibson has written extensively about um, cognitive development, sensory motor development in infancy. And says that these simple things that babies learn to do, looking, reaching, walking, um, have all of the hallmarks of much more complex psychological development that we associate with complex thinking, with personality. The infant acquires a sense of its own agency, I can do and recognizes the agency of other people. The infant develops a sense of prospectivity or planning. The infant can set goals for the future, even though it's a fairly immediate future, and develop plans for changing the current state to the desired prospective state. Infants begin to develop behavioral flexibility. If I can't achieve my goal this way, maybe I can modify what I do and achieve my goal that way. Um, infants develop the ability to plan the, the various steps, the various means that it takes um, to reach a desired end goal. So baby sensory systems, perceptual systems, are operating at birth, but with genetically guided maturation, nutritionally, experientially facilitated maturation, they develop, become more acute. Perception of some physical properties, many aspects of object constancy, are present at birth. Other perceptual abilities, like the ability to use depth cues, um, improve with 
motor experience, not just moving in the environment, but moving in the environment um, of your own volition, self-directed movement. Um, motor milestones are affected by the child's growth, by neurological development, by muscular development, by aspects of the social in, and physical environment, the expectations of parents. So seeing, thinking, and doing advance greatly in the first year of life, um, but the particular forms and even the particular schedule of those advances um, is heavily conditioned by the particular environment and experiences that an individual infant has.